Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. Welcome, everyone, to the last podcast of 2023, the December edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club podcast. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, for making it possible for us to be here together today. I'm Remley Crow, and today I am joined by our panelists, Dr. Tony Fernandez, Jeff Rollman, Michael Caduce, and Dr. Bill Toon. And we are super lucky, fortunate, excited to have with us from the authorship team of the paper that we'll be reviewing today, Dr. Mark Cicero, Dr. Kathleen Adelgaze, and Dr. Mark Auerbach. So as a reminder to all of you, the name of the article that we are reviewing today is the Frequency, Type, and Degree of Potential Harm and Adverse Safety Events Among Pediatric Emergency Medical Services Encounters. And this is hot off the press in pre-hospital emergency care. And this discussion, as always, will be paired with an article written by our very own Michael Caduce in EMS World called Journal Watch. So we encourage you to go not only listen to this podcast, but check out the companion article at emsworld.com under education and training. I want to thank those of you who are in the live audience today and remind you that you can participate using your chat or your Q&A feature, type in questions and comments, and we'll be bringing those into the conversation as we go. Take advantage, we have authors with us and this is exciting. All right, and without further ado, I wanna, dry, I wanna dive right in and say welcome. We really appreciate you all joining us today. Um, and for our audience who may not have the pleasure of knowing you yet, I would love it if we could start off with just some quick introductions, if you could tell us who you are, what you do, maybe how you got involved in EMS research, uh, that would be wonderful. So I will start with you, Dr. Cicero. Uh, hello, everybody. Thank you, Dr. Crow, for the invitation, Dr. Fernandez, uh, Michael, Jeff, and to all our listeners out there. I'm Mark Cicero. I'm a pediatric emergency physician and EMS physician here in New Haven, Connecticut. I'm a faculty member at the Yale School of Medicine. Uh, many years ago, in a different century, I was an EMT, both for my college uh, service and also in Livonia, New York. And um, I found my way back to EMS by way of disaster medicine. Uh, I was doing work with simulations and with didactic courses right around the time that Dr. Auerbach and I met each other for the first time. And someone pulled me aside and said, working with physicians to get ready for disasters is important and it's good work. But if you really want to make a difference, work with the people who make a difference in a chaotic situation when it first happens, work with EMTs, work with paramedics, and the rest is really history. Thanks again for the opportunity to talk with you all today. Yeah, we're so excited. And what a fun story, yes. And Dr. Adelgaze, to you. Thank you both uh, so much. And um, I am Kathleen Adelgaze. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine and EMS physician, and I work clinically at Children's Hospital Colorado in Aurora, Colorado, and, and with the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado. And um, I, similarly to Dr. Cicero, have a background as an EMT, working for the old Hartson Ambulance Service in San Diego many, many, many moons ago. Um, and I came into EMS research really through EMS for Children, um, having been involved in that in the state of Utah, and then again, now here in Colorado. And uh, I am a partner on uh, the project with Dr. Sister and Dr. Arbach here, um, bringing Colorado EMS agencies into the fold to do this um, three-state research on the impact of pediatric emergency care coordination. And I also um, oversee the EMS for Children program for the state of Colorado. So I'm kind of front and center on looking at how to improve pediatric care for EMS agencies here. And it's such an honor to be here today. Thank you. 
thank you for joining us. And my EMT heart is really full hearing about all of these backgrounds. And Dr. Auerbeck, uh, we would love to hear an introduction from you as well. Welcome. Yeah, so Mark Auerbeck, also in New Haven, uh, here with Dr. Cicero, and have had the honor and pleasure of working with Dr. Edelgeis and Dr. Cicero, both in um, pre-hospital as well as hospital-based emergency medical interventions through the National EMSC program. And uh, my interest and passion really is leveraging uh, innovative techniques and technologies. So trying to look at different apps, look at different training modalities like simulation and other interventions to really make it hopefully as easy as possible for people to take exceptionally high care of ill and injured children. So thank you for having me. Exciting. And the future is now. I am looking forward to hearing more about that later. All right. So we have a dream team with us today. I'm really excited that you all chose to share your time with us. And I want to congratulate you again on this excellent publication. We're, we're going to take some time before we get to the results, but they're really startling. And I think this is such an important paper. And I'm really glad that we're going to have the opportunity to discuss it and discuss it with you all who lived the making of it. Uh, just to remind our readers, I'll start off with you know, what was the objective here? So you all looked at the frequency, type, potential harm of adverse safety events in pediatric EMS encounters. And then secondarily looked at whether there was a group of patients if higher acuity might have been related to higher likelihood of experiencing an adverse safety event. And you know, before we dive into the methodology and the results of all of this, I'm always curious about what drove you all to take on this research question? How did this project come to be? To be completely transparent, this work was the necessary grounding point for a larger project that we've been really interested in, looking at pediatric emergency care coordination in pre-hospital setting. We've been really curious to know what associations exist between having a pediatric champion, or often abbreviated as PEC, uh, P-E-C-C, and what the associations are between having someone in that role, what the functions are of that person, and improved quality of care for children in the pre-hospital setting and, uh, and better outcomes for children. And really, this was an opportunity to take the pulse and understand what sorts of adverse safety events happen for children when they receive care in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, and also how severe are those, uh, are those episodes? And then beyond that, um, this serves as the groundwork to make comparisons Yes, between agencies that have a PEC and don't have a PEC, but also make comparisons as far as what happens before and after interventions to make a difference in the care of those children. So my colleagues may have additional uh, thoughts, but in my mind, um, that sort of encapsulates why it was we were so interested in these adverse safety events um, so that we could understand what children's experiences are like in the pre-hospital setting and whether PECs make a difference and what other differences can be made. And I'll add to that, Mark, I think that some of the work on safety events in EMS previously, and, and specifically with regard to children, have been either single diagnosis or a single run type, like an emergent response. Um, and this actually provides us the opportunity to describe um, safety events in global pre-hospital care across agencies of different types. Um, we have county-based agencies, hospital-based agencies, rural frontier agencies in this study. So it's really one of the larger uh, studies to capture overall pediatric care across the spectrum of the different ways that pre-hospital care is delivered. And look also across diagnoses and across acuities, because I think that that provides a lot more generalizability to what we're looking um, at when we want to start to target uh, safety events um, to optimize care for children. Yeah, and I, I think that is a really important piece. You know, as individual EMS clinicians, we don't often encounter pediatric patients. And so having this broad measurement of something that, again, is not super easy to measure in your typical PCR data or you know, not something that we're always looking for or that we have, you know, the culture of safety to be able to report these kinds of events. So this broad cross-section to me is a really great building block for future quality improvement work and for a great template for other agencies who may want to look and say, oh, wow, they measured it this way. Maybe this is something I should look at, you know, in my own agency. 
so really great topic and a really great template for future work. I love this as a building block. Uh, and I want to talk more about something that you said, Dr. Abigail, you talked about the, the multiple sites that were included in this and all of the different agencies. So I'm going to bring on Dr. Tony Fernandez to help us walk through some of the methods and we'll get started with talking about where this study took place. And so, Tony, I'm going to turn it over to you. Great. Thank you, Grimley. And uh, thank you to the authors for joining us. I uh, think it's a great study and I'm really excited to talk to you about it today. So. Let's just dive right into the methods. Um, <clears throat> where this was a, a retrospective, observational, uh, cross-sectional study, and you looked at pediatric EMS care um, among three states. And excuse me, your three states were Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Colorado. And you looked at data from November 2019 to October uh, 2021. Now, Connecticut and Rhode Island, they're neighbors. Um, Colorado, not so much. And one of the things we like to do uh, here is kind of get our, a lot of our listeners are brand new EMS researchers trying to get in the field. And um, it'd be interesting if you can tell us how this collaboration kind of came together between these three states. Uh, thanks so much for that question. Um, part of the answer to that includes that Rhode Island presented a natural experiment for us in a way, and that as we've learned as a nation about pediatric emergency care coordinators and the difference they make in the emergency department setting, and as we extrapolate those data to the pre-hospital setting, knowing that better outcomes are associated with pediatric readiness, um, a lot of states have taken different approaches to pediatric readiness. The state of Rhode Island, our smallest state, took the approach of saying, we will have a legislative mandate that every EMS agency must, should have a PEC, because this is something that's too important to leave to chance or to the discretion of individual agencies. Um, is it an unfunded mandate? Is it the sort of thing that is difficult to ensure that there's high quality? Um, you know, we can get into those issues or leave them to our listeners' imaginations. But Rhode Island mandated that every agency has a PAC. And you're right. Here we are. We're neighbors. Connecticut, not a very big state in its own regard. Three to four times the size of Rhode Island, I might add. But here, it's left to the discretion of agencies whether a PAC is present. So adjacent to one another, but very different in how pediatric champions in EMS or PECs are um, appointed. And Colorado uh, is perhaps somewhere in the middle. There are a lot of agencies that have PECs, whereas here in Connecticut, the majority don't yet have a PEC. And um, we really wanted the opportunity to take a look at everything from commercial agencies to municipal agencies, volunteer agencies, agencies that had short and long transport times, agencies that saw a lot of children over the course of a year. And for one of the agencies here in Connecticut, where the average pediatric census per year can be counted on one hand, we wanted to have that sort of variability and that sort of comparison across our three states. Another piece of the answer is, frankly, the uh, collaborators, our team, have had some really good experiences working together in the past. So when we were at the PEC Learning Collaborative some years ago now, we saw a great opportunity to make a proposal uh, for funding for a targeted issues grant from EMSC, and uh, we were fortunate to receive funding. So uh, some practical answers, some practical answers from a research standpoint, and some answers that get to the hopeful generalizability of both what we found in this study and what we'll find as we look at PACs. And I will interrupt um, with a fun fact. 173 Rhode Islands fit in Texas. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> now back to your serious scheduled programming, Dr. Adelgis. Um, <laughs> yes, Rhode Island is a tiny state and Texas is a very big one. <laughs> um, I, one other thing about the learning collaborative. So there was a national learning collaborative um, that nine states across the country participated in. And uh, one of the other interesting elements of this was both Connecticut and Rhode Island were states participating in that learning collaborative. And so you could see potentially some um, statewide um, efforts bleeding into this work and Colorado did not participate in that learning collaborative. And so it also provided an opportunity for a state that was kind of working on establishing pediatric emergency care coordination 
you know, on its own, but without like um, an, an overlay of at a statewide infrastructure level, um, kind of biasing the results. So I think that we also had an opportunity to show, you know, that um, through a kind of three different state model, uh, one on the two in the learning collaborative, one not, one requiring PECs, two not, it kind of shows every version. And so it makes again, that generalizability piece. And then also, again, you know, we we all um, like to work together too. Um, we have a very collaborative spirit in our in our field. So yeah, that certainly helps. I, I just love hearing the stories about how some of these uh, research. What a great one you all have! Uh, so uh, obviously, this was a convenient sample, um, and you looked at uh, patient care records uh, and hospital records for children age zero to eighteen. And there were 15 EMS agencies between the three states. I believe there were six in Connecticut, uh, five in Colorado, and four in Rhode Island. And I think um, one of the interesting things is, so uh, let's, before I jump into that, uh, the, the patients had to be transported by one of the EMS agencies, and the patient care uh, report had to be eligible for review uh, with outcome data from the receiving hospitals to be included in the study. Uh, did I get that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, yeah. So I want to highlight something that I think um, research assistants are worth their weight in gold, are they not? Uh, and I, I, I was reading in your study about how you had research associates, um, you had nine, is that correct? And seven of whom were EMS clinicians um, or were clinicians of some sort. Uh, and they were they recruited folks in person uh, and via um, uh, Zoom and telepresence uh, at the receiving hospitals at varying times throughout the day. Um, <clears throat> there are some folks on the call who are, again, just starting to get into research and potentially thinking about being research associates. Can you give them uh, an idea of kind of what this work was and how important they were to your team? Right. To, to be honest, there wouldn't have been a study were it not for our research associates, nor would there have been a study if our research associates weren't very flexible. Um, we all might remember back to, say, February and March of 2020, a time that required a lot of flexibility, had a lot of uncertainty. So just as we had uh, set up uh, all of our infrastructure for in-person enrollment uh, in February of 2020, we had to pivot very quickly. Uh, and do a lot of tele-enrollment, telepresence. And um, it, you know, the flexibility, the quick on the foot uh, research associate really is a person who's worth their weight in gold, as you say. And someone who's a research associate, depending on the environment in which they're enrolling, is often somebody who's right in the heart of what's going on clinically because they need to be to enroll well. So if someone's a research associate, if someone's at the beginning of their career in healthcare or pivoting to a new type of career, being an RA is also a wonderful way to get clinical exposure, to understand where the handoff occurs between EMS and the emergency department and what the flow through the emergency department is. And, um, and also it's a great way to interact with patients, their families, and understand what the experience is like, the vulnerabilities of someone in the emergency care setting, and to understand the importance of uh, empathy and compassion. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, and I, I, research associates have helped me out throughout my career. Um, certainly, uh, they make for much better papers when they're when they're available. So, uh, shout out to all the research associates and assistants out there. They're completely very helpful. Um, and you had your associates use a previously validated EMS uh, adverse safety event identification chart uh, as an extraction tool. Um, well, there's there's kind of two questions here. One. Um, there's a lot of folks who are looking to start a study and feel like they need to start from uh, reinventing the wheel from a ground up uh, if they're com coming up with a tool or or something. Um, and you use something that was previous val previously validated. Can you talk to us about that decision making um, and then dive a little bit in how that was utilized by your research associates? Right on. I, I'm going to acknowledge a debt of gratitude to the original authors I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but then I'm going to pivot to my colleague, Mark Auerbach, uh, from whom I've learned a lot about 
the value of using previously validated tools. And I'd like to hear what he has to say about that. Uh, but my goodness, do we owe a debt of, of gratitude to the EMS research team at the Oregon Health Sciences University? Their previously derived and validated tool, which is also affectionately called the seven minute chart extraction tool, made it so that once a person is familiar with the tool and embeds themselves in the electronic health record, uh, both the PCR, the pre-hospital care record, and the, the record from the emergency department, and reaches a rhythm, it becomes quite accessible to do a chart extraction in that span of time, roughly. Uh, I'll turn it over to Dr. Auerbach to think about previously validated works and their value. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Cicero. So, Tony, I, I would say it's actually... Um, really one of the most important lessons for early career researchers and sometimes even as people move on is, is doing a really thoughtful and deliberate approach to looking at the existing literature and to working towards collaboration with others in the field. So, you know, from a validation standpoint, um, I, I would say that, you know, using a previously published tool, which sometimes people refer to that as a validated tool, is really not sufficient. Using a tool that was rigorously developed and has strong what we call validity evidence, I think this is just a fantastic example of that, where we wanted to measure something, we wanted to measure safety in the EMS provider space, and we wanted to not just look at something as you know dichotomous as medication errors. We wanted to look across the multiple aspects and the complex aspects of pre-hospital care. And this tool really fit the bill quite nicely for that in the fact that it not only looked at the types of errors, but actually the severity and the potential for those errors to maybe cause uh, consequences or harm. And uh, as we applied this tool, we actually reached out to the group at OHSU and worked together with them. And it, it was really fun because these people became our partners and collaborators. And I think what many times uh, people might feel intimidated about reaching out to the author of an initial tool or feel like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like invade into their space or, or their professional um, place that they own. And, and I would say within our fields, extreme collaboration and really this work uh, was foundational to the work that we've done. And as another example, within the larger project, which we won't discuss as much today, even our simulation cases. So something as straightforward as using a simulation to measure and describe quality of care and safety of care. We collaborate with others within the pre-hospital research space, and we're very honored to have them come back and say, of course, you can use our cases and checklists, please. We're so thrilled that you're doing that. That is excellent. And just fantastic to hear that um, for the, there's there are folks, not only are there validated tools out there that you can use, you don't always have to start from the ground up and reinvent the wheel, that folks are just so willing to share it. I think that um, in my experience too, there's I've never come across uh, an author who, who did not want um, you to use their, their validated uh, published tool. Um, certainly if there's a uh, priority um, uh, uh, things available, but I, I would totally recommend uh, for everyone starting out, look for those validated tools because I think they can they can assist your research and get it off the ground. Um, and I also want to give a shout out to your entire research team because it looks like you uh, you manually matched your EMS records to your emergency department records. Um, and what a, 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 a heavy lift that is. Um, so I wanted to, uh, can you talk a little bit about how you did that and um, uh, and I just wanted to commend you for that work. That's a, that's a lot of hard work. This goes back, at least here in uh, Connecticut, and um, Dr. Ailegaze will be curious to hear if your experience was, was different. Um, this goes back to the value of diligent research associates who uh, are doing that matching, who are enrolling patients in real time, and then... Um, within the bounds of our institutional review board, uh, getting the appropriate identifiers to facilitate the matching. We're fortunate in a way in that our um, proprietary uh, patient care record is a part of the patient's electronic health record within our health system. So it's accessible. But as far as doing the matching, it's um, the sort of thing that's scanned as a document and available in the media section of the large commercial EHR that's used within our health system. Um, it was still really crucial 
that the research associates were doing the linkage and that they were active about it because otherwise um, it, it really wouldn't have been possible to uh, to effectively link the pre-hospital records to the uh, the emergency department and hospital records. And I will add to that um, one other thing, you know, if you are, we've, we mentioned all the time, if you're looking at one EMS agency, you're looking at one EMS agency. Mm. Um, and then I, I'll say, if you're looking at one state, you're looking at one state. Every state is a little different in how it uh, does things. And in Colorado, because one of our goals was to look across um, not only uh, diversity of type of EMS response agency, we also wanted to look across the diversity of geography. We have a frontier agency. Um, we have a, um, a county-based agency, a hospital-based EMS agency. We have a very large fire-based EMS agency participating in this study. And because of the, um, the Children's Hospital um, being really in the front range area of Colorado, we actually were able to get our hospital outcome data using um, health information exchange uh, programs that are um, in Colorado. So it's only one agency that actually, um, of our uh, five participating agencies that routinely transport to Children's Hospital Colorado, where we do have um, a, a hospital data exchange linkage. Um, for our other agencies, we were able to establish DUAs to collect um, direct information out of the EHR um, or the EPC, the, basically the um, EPCR software and then also link that to a health information exchange and get the hospital um, data outcome. So those data use agreements were just essential to the function of our work. Our work was also not done in um, real-time prospective um, enrollment of patients showing up to the emergency department as it was done in Connecticut. So the other beauty, I feel, of this study is the multimodal nature and the way we were able to collect data, showing that you can collect data retrospectively, you can collect data prospectively, um, and it, it all still is a very rich data set. And I think that lends itself to um, other methodologies in the future um, for, you know, again, research studies. And it also shows that this data collection tool that we used can be used in a variety of different ways as well um, uh, to kind of capture these adverse safety events. That's important for any EMS agency in the future if they're going to do QI work as opposed to just pure research. So, absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, diving into that. So, I always have the unenviable task of uh, holding folks up before we get to the really exciting results. But there are a couple things I do want to talk about before we jump into the results, so folks can understand um, as, as we get into the results. So, the adverse safety events they recorded. You had six clinical categories uh, that included assessment, diagnosis, clinical decision making procedures, medication, and fluid administration. And for your analysis, um, you recategorize those into four um, categories, which was assessment, diagnosis, clinical decision-making, uh, procedures, medication, O2 administration, and fluid administration. Uh, there were also five types of adverse outcomes uh, and unintended injuries or consequences, near misses, subdopable actions, errors, and um, management complications. And these were, uh, I, I love your acronym. Um, I don't know how to say it, but it's uh, UNSEMS. Um, can, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, how you categorize some of these and, and came up with the, uh, the, the the brand new acronym? Thank you for that, Tony. Um, you know, in both doing the work and putting together the paper, um, this, was a, a real topic of conversation for us. And then also we wanted to make sure that these end results were accessible. And this may be the spot where we flirt the most with inaccessibility. So let's make it accessible. Let's kind of unpack it. Um, I'm really glad that we have table one up on the screen right now for everyone to take a look at. You can think about it this way. Three different categories as far as what might happen from an adverse standpoint for a pediatric patient when they receive care in the pre-hospital setting. First, in what domain did it happen? You know, was it about the assessment of the patient? Was it the administration of medication or oxygen? Was it some procedure that didn't go as it should have, et cetera, or something about fluid administration? And you can see that on the left-hand side of the table um, and in some examples of these adverse safety events. Then in the middle are these sort of categories within those domains where you might see it happen. 
you know, an outright error might be the non-performance of, uh, of a task. Like somebody's in a lot of pain and, you know, they would benefit from pain medication clearly. And the MS clinician has within their skill set to give that medication. If that wasn't done, that's an error. Um, and uh, a near miss, another example here, the N of the acronym UNSEM, as we call it, sort of, uh, you know, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but uh, but still a useful oh. framework um, that we we owe uh, to previous authors um, might be. You know, the patient had too much medication; they were overdosed, and um, they didn't have any adverse symptoms that were attributed to that. That would be an example of a near miss. So we have you know what domain it happened in, what category of adverse safety event or unsem was it. And then beyond that, how harmful is it? Or how, how, how harmful was it likely to be? Either based on what happened in the emergency department documentation or beyond, or just, you know, like let's say, for example, a, an incredibly common type of patient that we have encountered has been an adolescent who's experiencing a behavioral health crisis. And what we see is that often those patients don't have a complete set of vital signs. Now, maybe the behavioral health crisis is because of a primary physical reason. Maybe they have some underlying medical uh, condition that might be missed if the vital signs aren't taken. But generally, an incomplete set of vital signs for a patient who is having a behavioral health crisis um, may be less likely to cause harm than an incomplete set of vital signs in a patient who's in respiratory failure um, and so forth. So three different lenses that when we align them, we get a picture of what sort of event happened, um, what category does it fit into, and how potentially harmful can it be? And, um, and, and that's how we approached each of these patients. Fantastic. And your analysis, you focused on determining the frequency of adverse safety events and determining if they differ uh, by factors that could be associated uh, with proficiency in EMS interventions. This included transport mode uh, as a proxy for acuity. So you looked at lights and sirens versus no. Um, the reasons for EMS transport um, <clears throat> as an indication or a likelihood of clinical intervention, you looked at the patient age and the final ED discharge uh, status. And then you built a multivariable district regression model to determine the adjusted odds ratios of um, any safety uh, adverse safety events versus none. Um, and I think that the analysis was very appropriate uh, for your data. And um, I'm really excited to dive into your results. But before we do, I'd like to open it up to any other panelists who might have some method-related questions. And, um, and then let's uh, dive into the results. Thank you all for uh, working through these methods with me. I think they're really excited. Just wanted to thank you all again for joining us today. It was really excellent to read your paper and hear about this amazing uh, multi-state collaboration. Just had two related uh, questions slash comments. Um, so first of all, it was awesome to hear about the research associates. As someone who has been a research associate before, I definitely know um, how tricky it can be carrying out these projects. But what I also really enjoyed reading about is how involved you were in this project since I've definitely been in the role where I've kind of told here's what to do and I almost never hear anything from the principal investigator and I feel kind of like I'm on my own but it was really nice to read about how actually you all as the clinicians as the um, um, emergency medicine and pediatric trained physicians were working very closely with the research associates and actually looking over these charts so I was curious if you could just tell us briefly about what that process looked like, and then also the importance of those EPCRs. I know the agencies participated in this, but the frontline EMTs and paramedics, they're just trying to get their chart done so that they can you know, go back to the station or get onto their next call. They're not necessarily thinking about these adverse safety events, but so much of this study relies on how things are documented. Um, so just curious kind of your role as the principal investigator really being in the weeds with the research associates and the data. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for that question, uh, Jeff. I think I can safely speak for our colleague, Dr. Linda Brown, who heads up our efforts in Rhode Island, uh, for Dr. Ailgaze, uh, when I say that our relationship with the RAs, in addition to uh, 
providing oversight and guidance as far as the role extends a bit beyond that too. Uh, I'm really excited to say that a number of our RAs have gone on to uh, to school for um, more advanced training as nurse practitioners or as physician associates and um, have taken roles too as uh, practicing paramedics and paramedic educators. So we saw that having some degree of principal investigator oversight for the chart extractions was really key, particularly if we're getting into the weeds of these three lenses that we can see here in table one, that having uh, some input from a physician, someone who's an EMS physician or somebody who's worked closely with EMS clinicians in the past, um, you know, is, is really important to be sure that we calibrate our RAs well. And as somebody who's also been an RA in the past, um, we uh, really benefit when we are RAs from uh, some from some feedback, from uh, the opportunity to debrief about our work so that we can do the best job possible. Uh, and then you had had another question, uh, you know, regarding... Um, you know, the, uh, the value of the chart extractions and just set me back straight about uh, the second question. I, I had had a fully thought out uh, answer that is uh, evaporated in my excitement about the potential of being an RA. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for hearing that. Um, but uh, yeah, my question was just pertaining to the actual data in these EPCRs the EMS oh, providers, yes. the frontline EMTs and paramedics that aren't thinking about this amazing research that's coming out of it. Thank you. Uh, listen, one of the best things for us in the emergency department setting is to have the view of the EMS clinician. An EMS clinician sees the social determinants of health, understands the relationship between the child and their parent or caregiver, understands the slide from which the child fell and that it was either three feet or 15 feet tall, and understands the certain the risk. They've seen it, and when they document it well and give us the narrative about what happened for the child with their seizure or was it a seizure what did the movements look like or that they couldn't um that the child couldn't speak freely because of uh, fear of someone else who was in the room uh they help inform not just the research but you know i'd argue uh, more importantly uh as immediate advocates for the child in the clinical situation so what's in the epcr really matters. And um, and also, uh, vexingly, from a research standpoint, um, when it's incomplete or when there's uh, contradiction, um, it may speak to how chaotic the situation was. And we understand that if you look at Mark Cicero's documentation in the emergency department, are there gaps? Absolutely. But when we can close that, those gaps, we continue the chain of um, clinical excellence and really understand that the care that we do in the emergency department and in the hospital is informed by what happens in EMS. Absolutely. And it, it's hard in the moment when you're on the front line, sometimes documenting, thinking that nobody's ever going to look at this to realize how big of an impact those drop down menus can have, what we write in the narrative, that additional context. I love that you mentioned social determinants of health. Who better to see them than that person who's going upstream and seeing the patient in their environment? Um, and this leads really nicely as we move into the results now about, you know, we talked about the RAs and, and the importance of spending time together and calibrating, even though this instrument, you know, is well-designed and easy to apply, making sure that it performs in this population as well as it did in those validation studies is a key piece. And you all did a fantastic job of that. Um, and we also mentioned that, you know, this is a low frequency event for individual clinicians a lot of times encountering a pediatric patient in and of itself. Um, and to study this at just one agency would probably take us a long, long, long time to get enough events together to be able to formulate any hypotheses and test them. But here you were able to assemble over 500 records from pediatric EMS transports and put those through this tool and assess the agreement between that. So I want to emphasize what a big study this is as we go into interpreting the results and putting those into context. Um, so the next table I'm going to pull up is table two, because this is something we always talk about on this podcast. We want to know something about the characteristics of who was in this study so that if we're going to look at our own systems, we can say, oh, is this population like mine? Are there important things that are different here that I should be paying attention to? And so I'll turn it over to our authors to 
pick out a couple of the key findings from table two in terms of characteristics of those patient encounters, more than 500 of them that were included in the study. Sure. Uh, and thanks for having it up on the screen. Yeah, you know, we can see that the gender was fairly evenly uh, balanced. Um, and we see a, a median age of nearly 12 years of age uh, among this cohort of patients who spanned birth to 18 years of age. When we look at the interquartile range, just by way of reminder, that's a way to help us unpack what the uh, 25th percentile age and 75th percentile age uh, was. So if we look down the right-hand column, uh, we can see that that IQR ranged from 3.7 to 15.3 years. Um, and let's go ahead and let our eyes kind of um, drop down to um, the overall primary impressions. Um, I think that this is a pretty accurate or a better word might be generalizable depiction of pediatric EMS uh, in the early 2020s. Um, we see injuries, which are predominantly, we know that trauma is a big reason that children seek emergency care. Look at the incidence of psychiatric emergencies where psychiatric emergencies um, comprised a full 14%. Um, eclipsing even respiratory distress, which is a very common reason that children come to emergency departments and seek EMS care. Seizures were common, as were altered mental status, and you can let your eyes go down through allergic reactions and intoxications. We did use transport priority um, by lights and sirens, and no lights and sirens is our proxy. Is this a perfect proxy for priority? No. I mean, different EMS agencies, different transport times, different distances to receiving centers might um, uh, help us understand whether lights and sirens will be used, even traffic patterns. And it's beyond the scope of our paper, today's discussion, to talk about the dangers of lights and sirens. But we can see that... Um, uh, for those who had a documented priority or lights and sirens, about one in eight were lights and sirens patients in our cohort. And um, the majority of patients at about 68% were discharged from the emergency department. But in contrast to um, children who show up to an emergency department in general, um, having 17% of them admitted to a floor and another about 2.5% admitted to an ICU um, certainly represents a sicker and or more injured cohort than what we see. And this, um, this mirrors what we've seen in other EMS work regarding pediatrics in the past, the children who seek care from EMS and arrive in an emergency department via EMS, um, two related but different factors, uh, are associated with um, children being more ill or more injured. My colleagues may have additional thoughts about our cohort. Um, no, I think that it's, you know, I think, as I mentioned at the start of this, that this study encapsulates a picture of global pediatric transports by EMS agencies. And um, I can't stress how important that is. There's a lot of other studies looking at the general epidemiology, a lot of work done by Brooke Lerner, um, who um, many of her papers, I'm sure, have uh, been presented on this podcast. And, you know, our data is similar, which is nice because it shows that what we're looking at when we do a deeper dive in adverse safety events, it's actually um, probably speaks to the true prevalence out there um, among, you know, a general population of children cared for by EMS. Absolutely. And I think that's a really key piece. And Dr. Albeck. Yeah, my only comment was going to be, uh, and it's certainly something that is a struggle always for research projects and activities, but um, perhaps more of a well-resourced set of EMS agencies just overall that, that are willing to collaborate with us as well as maybe transferring to um, urban uh, or suburban higher resource children's hospitals in some of our states. So I think Kathleen making progress, but I think similar to our emergency department work, uh, it, it may be even more challenging to understand uh, the realities of everyday care in places like critical access, rural hospitals and those areas. And this may be um, somewhat um, you know, higher acuity because of that, that these are specialized centers that ch these children are getting transferred to. 
Absolutely. And that's good to start thinking through, well, what are the drivers? What might make this population higher acuity? And this model probably replicates across a lot of situations in the United States. So this is a great foundational look at a broad cross-section of pediatric EMS encounters. And a couple of encouraging things that Dr. Cicero picked out for us is that the lights and sirens are being used judiciously. It would appear not just running hot because we have a patient who is a child um, is something really encouraging to look at here. And then I am very grateful that the age groups were split apart to give us a look into what that distribution is. And that interquartile range is very helpful. It might be tempting to say, oh, well, you know, 50% of the children were older than 12. And so that's an older population. But that lower bound shows us that one in four of these encounters was for a child who is younger than four years old. And so it's important to think about this as we plan for training and all of these things on what that distribution of pediatric patients looks like, because I think none of us would argue that it's the same to take care of a four-year-old as it is a 12-year-old, and we need to be ready for all of the above. And now I want to move us into the uh, meat of this project. So I'm going to flip over to table three, and this is a look at the clinical interventions. We talked about this may be a population that is a little bit more higher acuity because we're going to specialty pediatric centers. Um, but nevertheless, it's important to look at what is the frequency that we are doing these clinical interventions. And I love that this study wasn't just limited to medication administrations. And so perhaps Dr. Sister, you can kick us off and talk a little bit about the types of interventions that were looked at and how often we're seeing these things. Absolutely. Uh in table three, one of the categories in which we saw adverse safety events is deliberately not included. Uh, I'd just like to uh, tip my hat to assessment. We have the understanding that every child who's cared for by EMS clinicians will have assessment. So uh, let's unpack these four categories that we see here um, that include, or really five, that include airway and breathing management. And you can see the various kinds of airways that were used um, and airway interventions that were used. And um, you can see that across this cohort of 425 children who had additional clinical interventions beyond assessment, that really very few of them uh, had airway management uh, done. We see that uh, really there was uh, a handful or fewer than a handful of children who had any sort of superglottic airway placed, including um, uh, the King airway, the IGEL, and other superglottic airways, um, and that uh, things like nasal airways, nasal trumpets were used infrequently as well. And really, very few even had BVM. Uh, as far as the placement of IVs, um, this was one of the most common procedures done. And you can see that uh, that was done for 118 out of our cohort of a total of 508 patients. Uh, C collars were also placed fairly commonly. As far as any medication administered, uh, from bronchodilators to oral pain medications to epinephrine for that matter, um, about 13.5% uh, of those who had clinical interventions um, had a medication administered, 59 children in general. Commonly used medications to let your eyes run down. This included fentanyl for pain, midazolam for seizures, albuterol for bronchodilation, and then other medications less uh, frequently. Um, fluids were administered for about 31 patients um, or uh, a bit more than uh, five or six percent of our totally in, uh, total population of patients. And uh, blood glucose monitoring was also done fairly often because of all its indications in pediatric pre-hospital care. Seizures, altered mental status, uh, difficulty with um, brief resolved unexplained events or brew uh, and so forth. So uh, this represents the totality of procedures and uh, interventions done for patients beyond assessment. Yeah, and this table three is really key to set us up for how we interpret the next set of results because these additional interventions create additional opportunity for an unsub to occur. And so it's important to know in context how often any of these interventions are occurring which moves us straight over to table four, which is if you know a table could speak a thousand words, this is the one, uh, looking at the emergency medical care and the actual prevalence of ASEs along with the type of UNSEM, along with the potential for harm. And so this table to me is alarming, and I would love to hear from the authors on mm -hmm. your thoughts on 
what should our key takeaways from this be in EMS and what do we do with these findings? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, you know, before we even delve into the, the table, if this table had a headline, it's that adverse safety events in pre-hospital care of children is that they're common and that they go beyond sort of gotcha documentation pickiness, like, oh, you know, they didn't document a blood pressure in this child who is stable, uh, that they're common and often that they're actionable. Uh, and I'll be curious uh, for Dr. Edelgaze and Dr. Auerbach and, and their thoughts regarding this, but just kind of unpacking this, what have we done here? We've aligned those three lenses that we saw in table one. We have the categories, here we see assessment is back. Every patient had an assessment done. Um, and even in that bedrock assessment that can be done by an EMR or an EMT, emergency medical responder, uh, responder or um, an emergency medical technician, there were adverse safety events that happened. And, uh, and those included certain errors like um, not monitoring vital signs in patients who had instability or um, uh, non-usage of, say, cognitive aids like length-based tapes or apps when they'd be helpful for making decisions about the patient. And, you know, there was uh, about uh, one in five of those assessment um, adverse safety events that had the potential for mild or worse harm, severe or permanent harm. As we begin to work our way down from assessment, the stakes get, get higher, having at least one procedure. About a third of our patients had a procedure done, including airway management. And um, these errors, looking at them through the lens of, um, of UNSEMS, uh, we see that patients sometimes required multiple attempts at a procedure. Um, you know, this does happen. But having unsuccessful procedures in the pre-hospital setting may delay care or um, mean suboptimal care for patients. And we see that the likelihood for harm, again, uh, was, was, more than, um, uh, was more than harm being unlikely for half of the patients. Uh, and so as patients needed procedures, if they had an adverse safety event, then that was often coupled with a real risk for harm, uh, at least uh, mild or temporary harm. And as we brought together both medication administration and oxygen administration, what did we see? We saw that there was an even greater risk. If I'm bringing us over to the right-hand side of the table, where we see that one in five patients had mild temporary harm and that uh, the two of the patients, or about 7%, um, had permanent or severe harm associated with medications. If we go over to the clinical activity, we see issues like inadequate monitoring and the risk of um, patients having adverse events from the medication itself or um, uh, failure to performing uh, an indicated procedure, such as not giving uh, oxygen. Uh, so these are the less frequent but higher risk, more um, more potential for harm uh, sorts of events that uh, that this highlight is highlighted by this study. Similarly, with um, with fluid administration, where uh, there's relatively small number of patients who had that performed when an error occurred. Um, it was likely to have some kind of harm for over a third of them. So uh, that walks us through the table. And uh, I wonder if my co-authors have additional thoughts um, that we can glean from the table and from our findings in general. Um, Mark, I think that's a really nice, uh, you know, kind of walk through what we found. And I'll point out a couple of things. One is that, Again, validating this information against what has been previously published, the you know we expanded beyond, as you mentioned, Remley, just the medication administration and errors associated with it. But the fact that we found the same frequency of medication errors and types of medication errors, I think, lends validity to you know this evaluation. And that if we are detecting what has been reported similarly in medication errors, and we are accurate in that way. Um, if it's a true reflection of what's happening in the field, then our reports on many of these other events, adverse safety events, is likely also fairly reflective of what we're seeing. And to back up Mark's point about 
we're not being nitpicky here of you failed to check a blood pressure, blah, blah, blah. We were very thoughtful just to bring it back to some of the methods element of this. We took this validated tool and then before actually applying it to our population, we tested it in sample cases. And we also created a manual of operations for its use very specific to our study so that we were giving kind of quote, the benefit of the doubt when we were doing this chart review. And I think that's really key so that people can interpret this as something that is not, you know, high, you know, ivory tower PZR physicians, you know, um, nitpicking what was happening in the EMS community, but EMS physicians reviewing uh, this chart with the mindset of the EMS clinician in the field in mind and still finding some of these difficulties. The last point I'll make here is the fluid issue. Um, I will say that every study I ever look at, and when I've looked at our own work locally in Colorado, um, there is a failure to give fluid. We put in the IV and then we just stop there <laughs> and we don't administer fluids when they're, you know, to, and in our process. So we work a lot in simulation with our agencies here in Colorado through a mobile simulation program that we have where we really train people on fluid administration. And you can also argue like we hung a bag and we just, we had a 10 minute transport time. We didn't get them there, you know, before all the fluids are given. Well, that's what pull push fluids are for. That's where targeted administration of fluids to children that fit on the Brazel tape is, is a critical component of training. And this also kind of like backs that up. We're still failing to aggressively treat children who need, um, uh, inner, you know, vascular support um, in the field. If I may, um, you know, bringing it back to the RAs um, and looking at the table that we see in front of us, when there were disagreements about um, whether an adverse safety event had happened, I'll speak for the RAs, the excellent cadre of RAs I had a chance to work with here in Connecticut. When there were disagreements, it was often, or maybe almost always, that the RAs, many of whom were EMTs and paramedics, were uh, assessing more harshly than than I was. So do with that information as you will. But I find that um, you know EMS clinicians tend to have the spirit of uh, seeking improvement, but also uh, you know having a critical eye. We're our own worst critics more often than not, absolutely. This table, again, warrants a lot of study. So I think if, you know, there's listeners and you're wondering which table should I look at, definitely spend some time really diving into table four. Um, I'm going to invite on any panelists if there is one more burning question for our authors, as I will keep us on time. Um, and I will move us to the last table because I think that this is an important concluding table here. This was the multivariable regression model looking at whether or not things like the acuity of the patient might be related to whether or not one of these adverse safety events occurs. And the interesting finding here for me, and I'll let the authors comment, is that it wasn't so much the acuity of the patient that you know was associated with increased odds. It was whether clinical interventions were performed, creating that opportunity for an adverse safety event. And for me, the takeaway is to be on guard at all times, not just during high acuity patients. This is something we should be looking out for in designing systems around to prevent adverse safety events in all pediatric encounters, not just those that we deem high acuity. Thanks for, for framing up table five uh, so well. We can see that if we look at the confidence intervals on the right-hand side, those parenthetical data, you know, for transport priority for age, for EMS impression at dispatch comparing the psychiatric patients, very common reason for dispatch in our cohort, uh, to patients who had injuries or illnesses, we can see that those confidence intervals, that they cross one for all of them. Uh, the exception being that when we go to clinical interventions, especially those patients who had two or more clinical interventions, the more interventions, the more medications, the placement of an IV, whether a person had airway uh, management or support, that's where uh, the odds of having an adverse safety event can uh, increased. Um, and that there's another caveat kind of buried in this too, which is just because a patient has a behavioral health concern uh, doesn't mean that they are 
safe or immune from having adverse safety events. So we owe it to all of our patients to give them high quality care and be on alert. Absolutely. And, and this is just such a useful look at that. It, it, it tells us, you know, as EMS clinicians, what kinds of things we should be focusing on. I find this very helpful. And now time flies when you're reading really exciting studies and having fun. And so we are rounding out the last couple of minutes of this podcast. And I want to give the authors an opportunity to leave us with any last words or thoughts about this study or what should be next for us as EMS clinicians um, before I will carry us out. So I'll go around to the three of you if that's okay, starting with Dr. Cicero. These data help us take the pulse of where we're at from a safety standpoint for children in the pre-hospital setting in a large cohort across several different kinds of EMS uh, agencies. Where the next steps are going to be is what interventions, what associations are there between um, having, say, for example, a pediatric champion or what quality improvement and education efforts are associated with improvements. Um, it, just because this is how it's been and maybe has been for a long time, we saw that interesting data presented in the chat regarding the number of children seen in 1958 in Seattle. Uh, and I'm very interested in learning more about those uh, primordial days of EMS. You know, it doesn't mean that there aren't levers that we can pull, technologies we can apply, and means for applying uh, for improving the care of kids in the pre-hospital setting. I love that. We know better, we can do better. Absolutely. And Dr. Algis. I, yeah, I can't agree more. I, I think like looking at this information around the clinical interventions also means that teams need to anticipate what they may be doing so they have enough resources to make sure that they can maintain the patient's safety during a transport. If that means you need to um, get a mutual aid support in the field and help with transporting more people in the back of the ambulance um, and route, things like that. Because if you're really leaving this to one person in the back to handle multiple things simultaneously, we know that that's not going to go well. So I think that we, as Mark said, an opportunity to take this information and apply it for where do we see the pitfalls? How can we intervene on those pitfalls is just really a uh, key. And it's exciting to finally identify ways that we can potentially start to make some improvements. That is key indeed. And Dr. Auerbach. Yeah, thank you so much. So I, I think that um, I would echo most of the comments by my esteemed colleagues, but also highlight you can improve what you don't measure. So starting with mm -hmm. the importance of measuring here and that measuring, hopefully guiding our improvement. Uh, I think the psychiatric example is probably something that has changed from that Seattle cohort where I would gather that 10% were peds, but probably 0% were psych at that point in time. And that um, as we measure and understand the barriers to providing optimal care, hopefully we can develop and implement interventions that will support providers in what we all want to do, which is provide the best care to every patient that we encounter. And uh, I think that, um, you know, again, uh, the psychiatric piece was a big piece that surprised me in some ways, should not have surprised me in other ways, but understanding how we need to be reactive and adapt to the disease epidemiology we deal with. Like right now, many of us dealing with agitation and mental health emergencies that we probably did not deal with a decade ago. Uh, and just really want to thank you for the opportunity to chat with uh, you all and uh, with the group today and, and for uh, helping to bring uh, the importance of enhancing and optimizing pediatric uh, pre-hospital care uh, to the masses. I love that. I love that idea of focusing on what are the current needs of this population and accepting that those things will change over time and we have to keep our finger on that pulse. So I will, I have, I have the last, last word and I have the enviable task of closing us out. Um, but I really, on behalf of all of us here, want to thank you authors for your work to make this publication possible. It was no easy lift at any point and during a pandemic, nonetheless, this is a, a really foundational framework for us to use uh, to identify root causes and adverse safety events. And like Dr. Adelia say, said, let's focus on how we can determine the best actions for preventing these from occurring in the future. And it's probably not just simple education and comments on, could you just be more careful that this really is going to take a systems approach? 
Um, and so thank you all again for sharing your time here with us today. We're really excited to also read the results from the overarching project as well as the Pediatric Pre-Hospital Readiness Project that's been mentioned. So for our audience, keep your eyes out for those things. Uh, and with that, I have to take us out of this podcast, last one of the year, but there is still a chance to listen to the education podcast at the end of this year. So that will be held on Friday, December 22nd, and we'll be back here with the first clinical podcast of 2024, January 11th. I want to thank all of our listeners. Thank our authors once again. Look forward to nerding out with you next year. We hope that was you fun as heck, you guys. Thank you. GCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey and ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Mm -hmm.